Welcome to the special series from the South Bank Centre. I'm Harriet Fitchlittle, presenter of the Think Aloud podcast, and here we're going to be bringing you highlights from the Mount Booker 50 Festival. This weekend-long festival held here at the South Bank Centre was celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Man Booker Prize by bringing together over 60 of the world's leading authors, including 17 former winners of the prize, in a rare gathering together of often elusive literary titans. In this podcast, for the first time ever, we are going to be hearing from the winner of the Golden Man Booker Prize, Michael Ndachi, talking to novelist and winner of the 1989 Booker Prize, Kazuo Ishiguro. I've always loved collage. I, I loved collage even before I knew what it was. In the way I first wrote my poems, and the poems which were random suddenly had to be reshaped and had an order. And in a book like The Collector Works at Billy the Kid, which was prose and poetry and photographs and so forth, um, all these works somehow had to find a form within a book because it was a completely mongrel form. And I, I started to shape them and re- saw that if this poem fit against that poem, it had more of a drama between those two scenes because it didn't quite fit. So as, as in any collage. And I just love the art form of, of making random things and bringing them together in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a book or in a piece of art. And even running in the family, which is, that's, all, that's like a mixed media yes, collage. Yes, it is. I mean, bits I, I of didn't... song, bits of memoir, bits of biography. Right, I, I, I actually, didn't have a novel, so I, I didn't have the novel form in mm. my head yet. So it, it, it grew out of the, you know, these random pieces of incidents meeting with my family in Sri Lanka and hearing one story and then another story which completely you know, alienated that first story and so forth. That started to happen very, very early on. And then when I actually saw those uh, collages in the early 20th century France, it was just fantastic. Some, something like an Eng- The English Patient is, mm-hmm. is a very interesting collage technique. You, you've got four quite distinct stories there. And it is very collage the way you, you mix them up. It's not, you seem to actually relish kind of cutting up the sequences and, and putting them up against each other. So you get a little bit of uh, Hannah's story, and then, then you, you right. jump in time right. uh, to go to Amasi's story and so on. This is something that I try and do as well, but I like the freedom to be able to put lots of different episodes from different right. points in time, different contexts, next to each other. Um, rather than being locked into a plot line. But I think I always try and hide the fact that yes, I'm doing that. Well, so I, how do you hide it? You're bold, <laughs> you're bold about it. You, you like the actual hard edges where the, mm-hmm. you can see the tear of the pieces that you kind of stuck right. together. You know, I mean, that, that book is full of various times and incidents and families and, you know, dramas. And does move moves smoothly, but it is still also has that kind of underneath that, that collage time period. Perhaps because I didn't have the, your kind of uh, enthusiasm about collage or, mm-hmm. or the courage to do mm-hmm. collage. I always wanted to have different episodes next to each other, but I would spend a long time trying to figure out a kind of a, a way of slyly drifting from one to the other. Yeah. Usually I did it because I'm narrating in memory. You know, the narrator, because what? Because I'm using memory. Right. The, the first person narrator is usually right. picking out things from his or her memory. Um, that gives you the freedom to um, work like a collage artist, in a way. Right. But I, I, I was obsessed about you know, what I called methods of movement in my notebooks. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you move from one passage to the next without it seeming to jar? 
Right. Yeah, I find a book like English Patient very refreshing or emboldening because um, you seem to actually relish the idea that, um, that there are jagged bits and you're, you're moving between these two people and you can create a be- some kind of artistic object from the very fact that these things don't naturally necessarily sit side by side. So yeah. if, if you have that similar kind of range in, in your mind when you're writing the story, how do you sew them together in this, in this way that becomes almost invisible? It probably isn't invisible, but I, 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 have, I have a whole bag of what you might call tricks, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, they're not cheats entirely, because what I'm trying to... What I'm interested in is why a narrator would associate one memory with another memory, something that happened 30 years ago. You know, why has he recorded it now? And why has he put it... Why is the next thing he starts to talk about something that happened three days ago? What's the relationship between the two? I just reread artists of the floating world and you, hear, you follow a person whose whole life is kind of being remembered over a, a brief period of time and so you are leaping from time to time and he will look at a garden, something's happening in the garden and then that will remind him of something else so that you are kind of being guided very graciously to another time. Yeah, association things like, I mean this is very Proust-like you, know, you, you yeah. go by association but a favourite one of mine you choose an unlocated moment so, so let's say, you know I'm relating to you a story set in a, in a bar in, in Toronto in, in the 1980s. And, and, you know, something happens in this scene. Hope it's involving. And you get to a point where Michael Andachi says to me, you know, the trouble with you, Ishiguro, is that you're deluded about your musical abilities. Mm-hmm. Okay, at that moment, you can just stop the scene. And, and I say, well, actually, maybe it wasn't in Toronto that I, some, uh, Michael Andarchi said this. No, I think it was somebody else said it to me. I think it was a different point. Maybe it was, maybe it was in Northampton about you know, five years later, and it wasn't Michael Andarchi at all. And then you go into this completely different scene. And at a certain point, you know, to, when it's building to a climax, you say, and that was when the person <laughs> said to me, Ishiguro, you are mm-hmm. deluded about your musical abilities. And by using that unlocated little moment, you create a a kind of a template, I suppose, of putting two scenes next to each other. Theoretically, you could do this for three or four scenes, but I think it would get a bit much. Mm -hmm. But um, I worked out a whole lot of things like this in order to try and... I suppose now, what what we might call a collage type of thing. Like you, I resist instinctively being nailed down to a chronological pattern. Yeah, Yeah, and I think you know, it's not just collage, I think you know, for me something like a mural which is one piece, it's not 17 pieces broken up and stuck together, but a mural uh, someone like Diego Rivera became very important to me for that similar reason, that you could there's a mural in in, um, Detroit where there's a worker holding up a hammer at one end of the painting and then 20 feet away at the other end of the painting is a Foreman holding up a pen in exactly the same manner. So there's a rhyme that goes on, and, and it, all that is linked beautifully. And, you know, at the same time, it's, it's one piece. But um, I know one of the things, that I, to get back to music without the, the issue of delusion, I know you, you have, well, have always been very, very interested in music, and, and that has always been a part of your life, and has become more and more important in the last few years. I mean, you are writing music, you are playing music and composing music. If this is the envy of the other arts, is that an envy or something else? I think there is a real envy factor. For me, there's a difference between just being influenced by 
mm-hmm. other art, mm-hmm. art forms and actually envying some of them. I mean, envy suggests that there are some things that I feel are very difficult in, in the novel form or almost down, you know, downright impossible in the novel form that artists in other fields, other forms, can do relatively easily. And I think also to go along with that, I sometimes envy the, what you might call the critical and cultural climate around certain art forms, that perhaps the climate in their art forms encourages them to do some things and gives them the freedom to do some things that, that perhaps I have less of in my art form. You Can know. you give an example of that? Well, well, a couple of examples come to mind. I mean, these days my wife and I keep going to Vienna to, to, look at, to test the cakes, you know, very good cakes in Vienna. <laughs> While we're doing the cakes, we, 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 happen to, you know, we happen to take in a lot of the art in Vienna. Yeah. And, uh, um, I was looking at this Giacometti painting called Peace, mm. which I, I thought it was actually, I thought the paint was actually flaking off it when I was looking across the Albertina Gallery at it. And I went up to it and I realized that that was just an effect. Mm-hmm. He deliberately created this effect of, of it looking kind of quite rough. And, and in fact, art movements like Fauvism, you know, Matisse and people like that, they, they made this um, a tenet that... Right. Um, that to be beautiful, it should have a kind of an unfinished, rough quality. It shouldn't look too polished. And I think that's integral to things like uh, blues, jazz, rock music as well, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and to some kind of in- independent filmmaking. I, I do wonder, and I'd be interested to know what you think mm-hmm. of this, I wonder if in our neck of the woods um, it's quite difficult to insist on this being a virtue. You know, that, that there is an expectation for our work to be polished in a, in a conventional sense yeah. and that it can only suggest failure if there's a kind of an untidy or messy element incorporated. No, I, I think I, you're quite right. I think, I mean, I, I never want to finish a book that sounds perfectly completed. You know, there's always a suggestion of a door at the end that something can enter or, so, so someone, or someone can still leave. You know, there's a lot of unfinished things in my books. People leave halfway through the book and don't come back for 25 pages or 100 pages and they've changed their lives and they don't even necessarily talk about it. You know, as Heathcliff comes back but he doesn't have to chat about it, you know, where has he been? And I think that tradition, it's almost theatrical that, you know, people can leave the stage in Act 1 and come back in Act 4 and carry on the story. But I, I just love that whole idea of, of, of the unfinishedness. There was a wonderful show in New York of unfinished paintings, you know, going back to Cezanne, to much more contemporary and intentionally unfinished paintings. What you're saying about that influence of, of there's something the pleasure in a jazz musician or a singer that you know, one as a writer who is very stilled for most of the time does not have, you know, Someone said, well, I heard that you like Ray Charles more than Wordsworth. And I said, no, actually, I, I want to be Ray Charles, but I don't want to be Wordsworth. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, that, that, there's something public in the art of music or in the art of painting that isn't there in, in writing for me. I get the impression, perhaps I'm wrong, and if I was a musician, I would realise that things are much more restricted. But I get the impression there are people in music, as in modern art, a lot of modern art forms people are allowed to be more instinctive they don't have to they don't have to justify logically why they're making artistic decisions nearly to the extent that that perhaps we do 
don't you find yourself often being interviewed where you find yourself giving, giving an explanation for why you've done something? You know, um, Mr. Andachi, you know, why, why is Wardite set you know, in, in the period immediately after the Second World War? And, and you find yourself giving a, a very good, sound reason for why you've made a big decision or even a small decision, some detail in your novel. And I, I find myself doing this all the time, and, and I kind of think, well, it's not exactly a lie. But to it be honest, like I, I, well, it's, it's, kind of, it's probably kind of true, my explanation, yeah. but it is an explanation. Yeah. It's not the reason. The reason it happened was because at the time, just like perhaps a musician or an artist would do, I instinctively went for a, a particular thing. Mm-hmm. It sounded or felt right to me for what I wanted to express. Exactly, yeah. uh, but, but we're always being interrogated. It feels to me that there's people looking over our shoulders all the time saying, why did you do that? Give an explanation for that. And, um, and it's easy to forget... The kind of the instinctive part of decision making. Don't you, don't you find this? Yeah, I mean, for me, when I'm writing, I mean, I really don't have a, a large plan ahead. I mean, I don't have a whole plan for the novel before I begin it. So I usually begin with something very, very small, little secretive moment, and then the book builds up gradually. And I, for me, the writing of the book is a, a reconnaissance and a, and a discovery as opposed to a preset plan, you know. That phrase, following the brush, you know, uh, as in a Japanese painting, to me is kind of very much closer to how I write, how I write a write chapter about Olive Lawrence and, and Warlight, for instance. I knew nothing about her at the beginning of the chapter, and by the end of that chapter, I, she's now become a three-dimensional character. There's a great story about Ahmad Jamal, uh, who was a great fan of Ben Webster, who's a great, you know, saxophone player, and uh, he did hundreds of ballads, and he, they were playing, and then suddenly Ben Webster stopped, and Jamal said, why did you stop? And Ben Webster said, I forgot the words. So, I, you know, I think it goes the other way, too. Mm. The, you know, the music influences words, words influence music. I mean, he, he, could, he needed those words to kind of be a structure for him. Yeah, that, uh, Dexter Gordon does the same thing in mm. that movie, Round Midnight, mm. where he, he, he says, I can't remember the words, oh, really? Francis. Yeah, mm. he probably For jazz musicians, it's very important, even they're playing instrumentally, yeah. Yeah. To, to, to know the lyrics of the song, um, because mm-hmm. that's what they're playing off. But, uh, and I, I always envy singers, you know, um, yeah. because I think there's something about the human voice when it's singing. I think we're so tuned in to understanding and, and just you know, we're really fine-tuned about understanding human voices just just through evolution and so it means that when a singer starts to sing that there's a whole kind of biography and a and a hunk of social history that's in that voice that that that's there already before they've even started mm-hmm. you know we have to kind of we have to write that all in or build it all up i often listen to singers and envy them and I'm inspired by them you know, to, to try and capture a, a certain kind of emotion. Well, even a, a close-up in a film can say more than yeah. three paragraphs. It's mm-hmm. very annoying. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't be too envious. I mean, we're lucky that we're allowed to do. <laughs> so next bit, we want to talk about our childhoods, yeah? Uh, so you came to England when you were four, was that right? Five. Five. 1960, I came okay. to England. And I came when I was 11. In Sri Lanka, the first person I met who was literary, because I, I didn't meet anybody literary there, was a, a priest named Father Yin. And I would talk to him on the boundary of the cricket field. 
and Father Yin, who was Chinese, was the brother of Leslie Charteris, who wrote The Saint. And so I didn't read any of these books, you know, at that time, but I knew about this man who had a connection to a writer. In my childhood, at the time you're talking about, I, I read nothing. I don't remember reading anything. I don't remember being read to. I think for me, the, the novel was the dinner table, where I was listening to these incredible arguments and excuses being made by everybody in the family. Reading was for me just listening and watching, you know. Um, and and I, I don't remember ever learning to read. I just, it, was, it was more important for me to learn how to swim. So um, all that was happening in my youth. But certainly uh, in England, I, I read The Saint, I read the Bulldog Drummond books, which are horrifically racist books. John Buchan, who was also racist. I mean, there's, I think in The Three Hostages, there's a scene where he goes on for about a page about that fanatic Gandhi, you know, and then gets back to the thriller plot. You know, so there were a lot of these books I read as well, and uh, I wasn't lost, but it was a very odd map of the world. You know, I think you're right. When, when we were at a certain age, we read books to find out should people wear hats in cars or should they wear them in the elevator. You know, these are kind of very important rules we should live by. I agree with that. I think when I was reading these books, I was not just trying to learn about what the adult world was like mm -hmm. and you know, when, when men wear hats and when they don't. I think I was trying to learn about Englishness. I was aware that these books were set in a period just before the one I was living in and I think I instinctively thought that would give me a kind of grounding in this kind of baffling society that I'd arrived in. And so I think to a large extent I was trying to learn about Englishness mm -hmm. through Agatha Christie, right. Leslie Charteris, and particularly Sherlock Holmes. I like the Sherlock Holmes stories not because of their mysteries so much um, as for the kind of the, the coziness that exists in that relationship between Holmes and Watson. Mm -hmm. You know, this very English kind of friendship where they refer to each other by their surnames and, and call each other old chap and things like as that. As in boarding school. Well, this is all very new to me and um, I thought I could learn about how to behave in England by studying this, you know. Um, but, but there was something very seductive also about, about that friendship and the coziness of the Baker Street rooms mm -hmm. and so on. You know, and, uh, mm -hmm. So I think for me that was a very important part of, part of that. It, it, wasn't, it was adulthood, manhood, but it was also Englishness that I was looking yeah. for. Were you conscious of any books written by people outside of England when you were in your teens reading books? I wish I could say I, I was interested in... Proust and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the only non-English writers were pe people who wrote westerns yeah. um, uh, um, the good, the bad and the ugly film tie-in mm -hmm. I remember had a big influence oh, on me uh, at a certain point and um, man from uncle tie-ins I mean kind of very American things mm -hmm. but this too was quite important for me to, to gradually distinguish as, as a little, little boy coming from Japan the difference between American and English because yeah. you know, at the beginning I, I, I couldn't tell the two apart you know, I, I would go to school and say howdy yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it took me a while to realize that wasn't English, that, mm. that was a particular kind of English. And, uh, and so I, 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 I learned after a while that, you know, that is most singular, old chap, yeah. is English, and, yeah. and howdy is, is American. And so, so reading American things and reading uh, English yeah. things were important to me. But no, I, I, my reading w was very 
Philistine local, and yeah. it was a spin off from what, what mm. was popular in, in amongst us boys. You know. I, I remember um, before I moved to Canada, I mean, uh, the guys I, I loved were Damon Runyon and then the music was the coasters. So, I mean, it's an odd mix of my version of America was that these, these two, mm. one writer and one piece of music. So, well, Damon Runyon is really sophisticated. I mean, mm. well, you, you, how old were you when you were reading? Mm, 15, well, 16. Oh, I see. Oh, that's cheating. No, no, but by then I was reading, yeah. Uh, you were who uh, Yeah, I was a... Lolita or something. Yeah. No, no, yeah, I, I think I was reading slightly more widely, but I wasn't a big reader, mm. yeah, uh, until I had to read books at yeah. university. You know. uh, but it's interesting that there were writers like Sam Selvan, you know, who, who were in England and writing books like The Lonely Londoners and there were these, all these amazing musical groups that, that we're talking about this album called London is the Place for Me which has these great songs uh, pre-reggae songs and uh, you know victory test match and so forth and all this other culture was happening simultaneously to us uh, beside us while mm. you were reading the saints and so forth you know. but did, did you find that things like Bulldog Drummond was some sort of help to you in, in figuring out how English society well, it did. I mean, what's shocking is that, I mean, I, I, I must have read those books, and you look at those books now, and by page three, they're so disgustingly racist. Why didn't I just throw it across the room, you know? And the saint, in fact, actually is quite debonair. He, he claims to be debonair, and he does act mm. like a giant. Perhaps now, if I go back, it'll be more horrific, too. Well, well as you just pointed out with your story about this... Mr. Yin or whatever. Yes. Leslie Chartres, I didn't realize this until relatively it's recently, Chinese. it was half Chinese. Yeah. So, uh, might have been full Chinese. I thought Mother he was, was this ultra-English yeah. writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His, his name was uh, Leslie Boyer Yin. Yin. Mm-hmm. The mother was English and the father was Chinese. So, so that Sorry. might have stopped him being you know, so racist at, <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And of course Arthur Conan Doyle was, was Scottish and, and now when you read him, I mean he he's surprisingly liberal and open-minded mm-hmm. about all these things. Mm-hmm. You know? he, there aren't many of these jarring notes that you get when you read uh, Sapper or, um, uh, or John Buchan, or Did, even Ian Fleming. You know? When you were at school in England, were you kind of guided towards a certain kind of life? I mean, not necessarily being a writer, but did you have a path given, shown you? Well, when I went to grammar school, that was, you know, it was a very orthodox, traditional kind of school. I mean, mm. probably not so different to, to that one. You know, yours was much more posh, the yeah. Sturridge College. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, mine was a state grammar school, but I mean, the, the values are much the same. But the primary school, where I was reading a lot of these books, it, it was kind of experimental. It was mm-hmm. a 1960s experimental thing. It didn't have lessons. And... Um, and so there was a bunch of us who, who were very keen on um, creating our own books and our own comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, you, could, you could spend the whole afternoon doing what, whatever you wanted. You know? and, uh, um, and so th- that's why there was this culture of... Um, I, it wasn't high-brow reading at all, but you know, we mm-hmm. were encouraged to read but anything that we wanted. So yeah. it would usually be you know, spy thrillers and, and mm-hmm. sometimes war things. And... Uh, and we would all have our own heroes that we wrote about. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine had a hero called Mr. Senior, who was a spy. And we were so envious of that name that I think, I think we just put, we blotted his book once when he was <laughs> to uh, did, did your school, do you know what you were going to be when you were at school in England? No idea, no idea. No, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite a latecomer to things like yeah. uh, writing. Um, yeah, I, I was too. And... and Unfortunately, 
the certain professionals came to the school and told us, interviewed us for 20 minutes, and then they would a week later tell you what you were supposed to be, what you would be good at. And I was told I would be a very good customs officer. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I longed to find my profession eventually. <laughs> so we should uh, yeah jump ahead. We should move on to our next. Um, little section, unless you, there, there's another reminiscence no. from, <laughs> from... Work it from all out now. But that, that school you went to is remarkable. It's very good. Uh, it's for, for producing writers. You know that Michael is one of many. Uh, I think Graham Swift, Raymond yeah. Chandler, C.S. Forrester, P.G. Woodhouse. Woodhouse yeah. Anybody else I've missed out? Is, is it, it's not, not yet, yeah, no. There's somebody else. There's some, some other... Okay. <laughs> it's an astonishing bunch of... Um, but there was no sense writers. of that when we were there, mm. there were famous writers there. Or the guy who wrote um, The Four Feathers, whatever his name was, was there too. Yeah, I don't... I, I don't <coughs> but there I don't was know. no mention mm. of famous writers being there. It was Trevor Bailey, the cricketer, who was mm. mentioned mm. daily. Yeah, maybe writers aren't really... Uh, you know, they're not created in schools, perhaps. Yeah. That, that, that's possible. I get the feeling your, your research that you do is quite formidable. Uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, they're, they're like kind of works unto themselves. Mm. So, uh, I, so this is the obvious question. I mean, um, a lot of that kind of stuff, um, the notes you've gathered about you know, bomb disposal right. stuff or, um, you know, how desert tribes uh, behave and so mm. on, I mean, are these, are these things that you're intrinsically interested in and you've gone out there and you're making notes about it and then when you came to tell a story you thought, oh, I know, I can use some of that knowledge or did you actually, did you have a story and you thought, well, I'd better go and find out about A, B and C. Right. Is, is, is that what you've done? No, I, neither in fact because mm. I, I certainly did not do research on bomb disposal and so forth and then take that research and write a book about it but I, I, you know, as I said, I begin a book with, uh, with very little information. Gradually, a story builds, and in, in this English patient is, is a, uh, a, a house that is, has been mined badly, and unaware about. I mean, suddenly, halfway through the book, Kip turns up, and he's a bomb disposal expert, and which is pretty essential for a house that has been mined in an area that has been mined. So. Then I, at that point, I went and did research on bomb disposal and went to various places and, and you know, read various techniques that were used up to a certain point of 1942 or something like that. And so research sometimes often comes, in fact, as a necessity as opposed to an invention. You know, so I, um, the research in, in many of the books do it in, in English patient or um, like we saw war surgery in Sri Lanka, uh, which I used for Arnold's Ghost, uh, was a, a necessity. You know, I, I had to find out about it. And it, it was almost like the text was waiting to find out more so it could continue. So Kip could continue having a, a, giving him a kind of landscape of work. But, but once you do the research, then does that in itself trigger off more imagination? More, oh, yeah. More imaginative yeah. things. That, Definitely. So you start inventing more... Yeah. things that you wouldn't have done if you hadn't found out to start. Yes, and, mm. so, and often what, what tends to happen in an odd way is that the, the research isn't 
too detailed because you know if you have a too detailed research, then it gets, becomes like a kind of time capsule. You know what the, what the Germans were wearing in 1943 and the length of their raincoats and stuff like that. Whereas, the, say the bomb disposal scenes with Kip in English Patient, I mean that the, those key scenes have very little detail about it. it, it he's, he's angry about Lord Suffolk having been killed. He's got a cold. The emotional state is what gears you to stay close to it as opposed to 100 pages of details of bomb disposal, you know. But, but it's interesting to me is that, I mean, um, and we've talked before, the, the kind of research I do is, is very technical in a, in a kind of you know, physical way and the kind of research that I think you've been doing in, in recent work with, with dreams, for instance. Could you talk about that? Because it's a very different kind of research, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably don't do need as much kind of hard research as, no, as, I know, but. as you do. Although, but just before we leave your research, I have to say, I mean, I think one of the characteristics of your work is that there's very little in it that's, that feels generic. You know, for, for instance, you mentioned Kip, the bomb disposal mm-hmm. guy in, uh, in The English Patient. I mean, um, a, a lot of authors would have just been happy to have him as a Sikh guy who just, who just fights in the British Army. Mm-hmm. That would have been enough for a lot mm-hmm. of people. Um, but the fact that you make him a bomb disposal expert uh, and you, you seem to have this authoritative knowledge about bomb disposal mm-hmm. techniques and you, you, you're faced with all these very tense situations where he... And you seem to know all the actual fine details of how mm-hmm. it's done, you know. Um, so you avoid the kind of the generic thing. Of, yeah. It's just a soldier, um, although he has this kind of Indian background and he's torn in loyalty. So, um, and so this happens over and over again, I think, in your, in your new book, you know, I mean, um, uh, you know, to describe the, these, these adolescents' lives you know, in, the kind of, in the kind of limbo point in their, mm. their lives. And once again, I mean, a lot of people would have been quite content to, to use kind of generic story ideas, you know, about them hanging around in cafes or going to teenage parties and things mm-hmm. like this. You don't. Once again, I, I, I think it's because of that, that depth of research. Your imagination seems to take off from something quite specific. So, mm-hmm. so you know, they become involved in greyhound smuggling. Mm-hmm. You know, and and, and, and they, they get to know the back canal routes of London. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, uh, adolescents conduct love affairs in, in the empty, vacated estate agents' properties you know, when, when no, no one's there. You know. uh, they, they become very, very specific. Um, in fact, there, there's this rather bizarre thing about... Um, there, there's a book called The Roof, well, the Roof Climber's Guide to Trinity, yeah. referring to Trinity College, mm. Oxford, yes? Yes. Mm. Um, because you, you've somewhere stumbled on this idea, you know, this... True. Yeah, fact. I, I, I think I've heard about this book for quite a pe- while. People climbed, spent a lot of their time climbing roofs around yeah. the Oxford colleges late at night. Yeah, they were used to the Alps on their weekends, you know, in, in Europe. So uh, when they were back in um, Cambridge, they were climbing. These became the Alps for them. And then when the term was over, they would pra- keep practicing at Harrods, climbing up Harrods and Southridges and so forth. And there really was a book called um, The Roof Guiders. Yes, I'm afraid the so. The Roof Climbers Guide to Trinity. <laughs> Well, once again, so, so instead of the, what you might call the generic romance between two young people who meet at Oxford, 
you know, these people meet while they're climbing roofs mm -hmm. in the dead of night, you know, hanging from things, yeah. saying, saying, I'm studying chemistry. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and so I think it gives your... It, it does give... It, it allows the imagination to move into the almost you know, the near surreal, but, yeah. but it becomes very particular. Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I think this is a very dis distinctive thing. Mm. Um, yeah, I should say, my, my research is probably... I, I do less of that kind of research. I do, I'd like to do a lot of historical research. Into, well, that's what I'm into interested a, in, because mm. I know uh, there are some, some books you've talked about. Um, um, but also, one of the things you did talk about was when you were writing, I think, uh, The Unconsoled, I'm not quite sure if it was that book, or, but also the whole idea of um, finding out about dreams and how they work. And that, that was you talked about a term called the odd witness, for instance. Yeah, that, that one of those images zoomed in yes, on, was, yeah. on, on my actual note when I was writing about what I called odd witness. The, I mean, the research I was doing around that, that time, and, it, and it's research that's re relevant to a number of my books, including mm -hmm, yeah, the one things I'm writing now. I mean, I, there came a point when I started to ask if, if the dreaming mind was, was an author, was a novelist, you know, what would be the characteristic stylistic traits and innovations that this author used? Because I thought the dreaming mind was very interesting. And so the only place I could go to research that was to, to write down uh, you know, what I could remember, fragments of dreams. I wasn't really interested in, the, in kind of like, like dreams per se or the narrative, that, you know, because that's very boring. Like everybody else, dreams are very boring. But the methods by which um, the story was told, if you like, or the, um, that was fascinating. And, I, and it occurred to me that most of us would be familiar with these narrative techniques because we're used to dreaming. You know. And so I made a whole list of these kind of quirky things and, and one of those sheets that came up sorry I should be doing that mm. but one of those sheets that came up uh, was, was the list um, that I developed over many uh, quite a long time you know um, um, uh, odd witness I mean, it's just one, one example amongst mm. many I mean odd, uh, uh, just, just very quickly if you, if you want to know what odd witness mm. is um, you and me are sitting in the back of a, a taxi let's say and we're driving through the London night um, and uh, okay, I'm the narrator, and, and and you suddenly say to the taxi driver, "No, wait a minute. There's, I just could you just pull up? I need to go into this house. There's, we're just going past the friend's house." And so the taxi pulls up. You say to me, "I won't be long," and, and you get out. Right? And I watch you from the taxi, you know, going up to the door, ringing the doorbell, somebody letting you in. I'm, I'm watching like this. Um, then the door closes. I watch you, you know, talking. I witness you fully, you know, talking to the person, to this, to this woman. You know, you go further into the house. You go into a back room, sit down, have a conversation. I, I can narrate all this. I can, I can witness all this. Uh, and, and it remains a first-person narration. I can say, I was surprised that Michael then said, or the painting on the wall was, was one that I wasn't very fond of. You know, I, I would still be there, but... And then suddenly the whole thing will be interrupted because a taxi driver turns around and talks to me. And I'm back in the cab again. Okay, so that, that's, that's odd witness. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know if many of you, while I was saying that, felt a sense of familiarity about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that happens quite a lot when we dream. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very useful um, extension of a first-person 
narration. Okay. Because so, it, it, you, can, you can go beyond what can normally conventionally be witnessed. And so that, that's one technique that I, I've brought into my general. So you sort of take that as a, as a not as a, as a device, but as, as, a, as a way of writing a scene. Yes, it, yes, yes. Mm. As I said, I've never been that interested in people. When people say, you know, when my wife says, oh, I had an interesting dream you know, last night, I, I, I must admit, I, I kind of switch off, you know. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm not really interested in the content of dreams. But if I'm listening, I'm listening to, I'm listening for these, the, the ways, yeah. the, the really interesting ways in which the dreaming mind tells mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about a, um, a book that you have mentioned uh, because I think it also relates to the dreams. The dream stuff obviously relates to many of your books, you know. But also a book called *The Long Shadows*, which is by Elena Paris. I think you mentioned her. And um, can you talk a bit about when you read her and how important she was, or was she? Oh yeah, I mean, there are many books that become very important to me that are non-fiction books. You know, uh, that that there. Uh, Anna Paris's Long Shadows had a lot to do with um, a lot of my later writing, including mm-hmm. The Buried Giant. I mean, it's a, it's, she's a Canadian person. I, I don't know if you know her. Or, no, I haven't no, met no, her. No, no, no. Okay. Mm. Um, I think she's, her work is very important. Um, but, but this is a kind of like a, a piece of reportage come travel book, you know, um, where she's traveling around various parts of the world that have had recent conflict. And, and uh, you know, she, she talks to the actual people on the ground about how they're, how they're you know, say, Rwanda after, or um, South Africa after apartheid. Or, or indeed, she travels around America um, mm. to, to look at what's happening about the whole race thing. And this book was published probably about 15 years ago. I'm not quite sure. But um, uh, sometimes a book like that um, helps really kind of focus, for me, the themes that I'm interested in, you know, because at the heart of that book, I thought that it's really about looking at real communities at what was then the present time and asking that question, when is it better for a society to forget and when is it better for a society to remember? And there's a real tension between remembering and forgetting uh, for every nation, every country. We all have these things that we're uncomfortable about remembering, but if we don't face up to them, and I think America is, is paying the price for that mm-hmm. about race at the moment. Um, and Europe is full of these kind of buried things about the war. Um, um, so there's a real tension. But if you remember too much, then all you're doing is you, you, you exacerbate the, the cycle mm-hmm. of violence and bitterness through, down through the generations. So, mm-hmm. so something like a... I often have that kind of... I mean, it's not research as such, but I'm, I'm reading books with very big serious ideas and I do find that they have something around which to, to shape my fiction. Because I mean, that, that subject is very evident even something like um, an artist of the floating world you know I mean, it, 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 I just reread it recently and it's very central to that when, is, when one has to be silent or not be mm. silent when forgets you know. Yeah. Can we talk about can we talk about love? Okay. <laughs> because I mean, before our time runs out, I kind of want to, I kind of want to say, I mean, love in the bigger sense than that. But and it was interesting because when I put this to you on the, on the phone about a month ago, you seemed quite surprised that you never thought about it before, mm. and probably everybody in this room has already <laughs> thought this. But you're very interested in these liminal spaces, liminal points. 
uh, when people are in, in a kind of uh, moment of transition. And so often the settings are moments of transition. It's the end of a war. Perhaps mm-hmm. there's another war coming or another crisis era coming. You like places like deserts and kind of back canals and places like this or an ocean liner that is crossing an ocean so that for an adolescent it's between two of their lives. You're very much a liminal space writer and, and historically the people are in, suspended between two big eras of history but often in their personal lives they are too. You know, they're mm-hmm. Their parents have disappeared, or they're being sent abroad for the first time, or they're adolescents, or something like this. And what I find really interesting about your work is how love comes in, into these little spaces. Compared to you, I, my love stories, if you like, I, I have a much more conventional, kind of Western kind of idea about a big, grand love in one's life. Mm-hmm. You know? So a lot of my novels center around the big love affair that failed or didn't fail. Whereas I think your books articulate the fact that often, almost accidentally, people come across each other in these little moments, like an English patient, mm-hmm. some sort of some wrecked villa that was once occupied by the Germans, it was a hospital, now it's something else, it's going to be something else later. The disparate characters come together for a fleeting moment. But something really important can grow between them, mm-hmm. that they can take into their futures. And much more quickly than most people, I think you, you do use the word love. You know, Kip loved Lord Suffolk, mm-hmm. you know, the, his mentor who, who right. didn't patronise him, although he was a young Indian kid and treated him with great respect and, and made him into who he was. And, and I think Warlight is, is as great a book as The English Patient. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't like to plug people's latest books for reasons of rivalry and not wanting to feel like a salesman, but I do feel that it's as good as anything you've, you've written. And I think it's full of this. People who accidentally come into p- these adolescents' lives, perhaps because they've been hired or told to look yeah. after them or help them, or, uh, you know, but just the, the nature of kind of fractured humanity and growing up Love can exist in all kinds of relationships between, between the generations, between unlikely people. Often the important things that people take with them into adulthood is, is made up of these mm-hmm. fleeting, the love that they've been able to, mm-hmm. to accumulate in these moments. You know, is this a fair representation of... Yeah, of I, I, I think, you know, I mean, suddenly something like The Cat's Table, which is a mm-hmm. boy going from Sri Lanka to England on a ship for 21 days, you know, is that kind of liminal... Passage, it is love, but it, it, it begins as education. I think you know. I mean, he, there's good education and bad education, mm. depending on who's teaching you it on the on the on the ship. Partly, I guess, because I've, I've been quite nomadic as well. You know, I lived in Sri Lanka till I was 11. I came to England, and then I left at 18. I went to Canada, and so that there is a kind of this constant sense of this happened until that time, and this happened after that point. So I think. That brings up the, the other issue. But also, you know, I think when you move to a new country at, at certain points, in your, key points in your life, 11 or 18, you have to land on your feet. And so there's that element and also being drawn to people who can help you. Like, like the two kids, you know, that they get, have the comfort of strangers, you know, uh, uh, in, in that book. Again, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but I think I can recognize when, you, when you're talking about that element of, Love, all the different kinds of love, too. You know. Because I, I've been brought up very much in the Western literary 
tradition. I say by you know, Western European and, yeah. and, and Anglo-American literary tradition. Perhaps I, you know, I've unconsciously foregrounded the male-female. I haven't written about gay relationships, but you know, the, the kind of the big love, yeah. romantic love relationship, as being almost synonymous with the love story. Mm-hmm. Maybe in less Western, non-Western literary cultures or cultures generally, perhaps there's a keener appreciation that love exists in many kinds of uh, relationships. Do, do, do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I, mean, I think also the fact that, you know, in, in, uh, when, I, when my, my parents broke up, I was a, a boy in Sri Lanka. And so in Asia, you have this kind of massive family around the parents. You know, everyone is an uncle, everyone's an aunt, even if they're not officially uncles or aunts. And so there's a larger family group that protects you, I think. And I, and I was very conscious of that. Even when my mother had gone to England, there were uncles and aunts who I searched for and was you know, looked after by or school friends and so forth. Mm. So it wasn't, it wasn't the, the, the strict nuclear family. Perhaps that was part of it too. That was Michael Ndachi and Kazuo Ishiguro speaking as part of the Man Booker 50 Festival. Thanks for listening. You can hear about more of what went on at the festival by listening to the Southbank Centre's book podcast, which you can find on our website, southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from.